the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. We close out another week. It's the Friday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart, you need only to dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send your questions in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, um, you can use the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, a couple of things. Tonight we've got uh, Bible studies going on. Pastor Ken will be teaching uh, in the Gospel of John. He's still in chapter 1. That's good. So, uh, Pastor Ken, tonight at 7 o'clock, you can watch that at calvarysa.com. Uh, and then, of course, on Sunday, uh, it will be Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. I know it will also be Communion in many of your churches. Um, wonderful opportunity to share at the Lord's table. So uh, I pray that you are all abundantly blessed in the process. One other thing that I would just ask you to pray as the Lord brings Paula to heart and mind. I think she's going to be teaching uh, tonight sometime around 7.30 or 8 o'clock um, in West Houston. And uh, she's speaking to the ladies there. Uh, and I know she would love to know that you guys are praying. She got there safely and uh, is excited about what the Lord is going to do. Okay, let's get to questions, and then we will um, see what happens on the phone calls a little bit later. Um, my first question is from Robert S. He says, Colossians says that Jesus holds all things together. When I read this, I take it literally. Was he still doing this even when he was here on earth? Um, Robert, remember, Jesus never stopped being God. He just veiled his deity. So, yeah, the power of God behind the scenes was also at work. Now, whether the Father or the Holy Spirit was doing it, we don't know. But here's what we know for sure, that things didn't blow apart when Jesus was on earth. And because they didn't blow apart, um, then then seriously, all things were in safe hands. So was he still doing this when he was here on earth? He veiled his deity in his incarnation, but he never stopped it. He never stopped being God. Even when he died, he didn't stop being God. His humanity died, but not Jesus. And so, Robert, I, I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer, but there's just some things we don't know how it worked out. Here is a question from Emily. She says, uh, in Second Kings chapter 8, verse 26, 
And in Second Chronicles chapter 22, verse 2, it says that Ahaziah was 22 when he started his reign. But in some other versions, in Second Chronicles chapter 22, verse 2, it says that Amaziah was 42. I know the Bible doesn't contradict itself, so why are there two different ages? Elizabeth, um, there are some things in, in, in the, the ancient Hebrew that are just difficult. And, and this would be uh, nothing more than a copyist error. Uh, in the Second Chronicles account, uh, where it's written that he's 42 years old, um, that is what seems to be incorrect. And that would be just a transcribing mistake made uh, as um, they all get the age right in the King's passage. So uh, all of the translations, the modern, more modern ones, King James and New King James, uh, they're all consistent in the King's passages, but in the Second Chronicles passage, in that particular case, that's an, uh, a copyist error. Now, people are saying, well, well, then the Bible, we can't depend on it. No, a copyist error is easy. Remember, it was the original manuscripts that were without error. They were infallible and inerrant. Um, the, the, the manuscripts that we have, um, um, thousands of them, um, the manuscripts, when you put them all together, we can come up with a, a, a an authentic, um, um, viable translation of what those manuscripts said. So we've got plenty of evidence, but this was just a copyist error, and it's not to be made too big a deal of. Um, those kind of errors happen. In the King's passages, they're all the same and consistent. So uh, clearly the age of 22 is the correct one. So, Emily, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. Here's a question I had. I'm going to have to dig it out. This is from Caleb. Caleb, good to hear from you. Um, Hi, Pastor Ron. I hope you're doing well. I have a question about dispensationalism. I'm talking to friends who are not dispensational, and I want to make sure I understand it properly. I've read about seven dispensations. Is this the generally accepted amount, or, or would this be considered hyper-dispensationalism? How many dispensations do you see in Scripture? And Caleb says he loves me. Caleb, it is so good to hear from you from California. God bless you. We're praying for you all the time. Now, there's a lot of things here about the translations, uh, the dispensations, rather, um, that we need to be able to focus on. Now, one of the reasons dispensationalism is important uh, is because it's the only way you can make sense of the Bible. You've got to make distinctions between different people groups and the way that God was speaking to those different people groups at different times. For example, and I've said this in the past, that if you believe that Israel and the church are two separate entities, you are a dispensationalist by definition. Now, one of the advantages about dispensationalism is that dispensationalists hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible that is the most authentic hermeneutic, and that gets the, the, the words, the meaning that would commonly have in everyday language. So it's very, very important. Um, if if we don't take our Bibles literally, then we've got some real issues. Now, with regard to the dispensations, Caleb, I hold to uh, seven dispensations. Um, my my dispensationalism can be described, I think, best by um, C.I. Schofield's um, view of dispensationalism. Um, Hyper dispensationalism is crazy dangerous. Uh, they, they see as many as 30 different dispensations. They'll see several dispensations within the book of Acts, and, and that's when things get out of balance. So uh, here's the thing. These periods, these seven periods, are marked off in Scripture by uh, simply God's dealing with mankind or a or portion of mankind um, in different ways. Uh, each dispensation uh, is is a new test of the natural man, and each ends in judgment, um, demonstrating that man's absolutely failing uh, in that thing. Now, five of the dispensations. I'm going to go over the dispensations. This is important, so I'll go, I'll take a little bit of time with this question, Caleb. Five of the dispensations, or these ages, or periods of time, have been fulfilled. 
We, you and I, we're living in the sixth. It's a dispensation of grace. Uh, I believe that we're right at the end of that dispensation. And then that will lead directly into the seventh dispensation or the last, and that is the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Um, the dispensations are, are these. The first is innocent. Innocence. Man is innocent. And this dispensation um, begins with the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2 to his expulsion from Edom. Adam was created innocent. He was ignorant of good and evil, knowing only good. And he was placed in the garden with his wife. Uh, and, of course, that's when he failed and man was driven out of the garden. So that was the end of that first dispensation. The second dispensation is conscience or man under conscience. And uh, we know that by the fall, uh, Adam and Eve acquired uh, and transmitted to the race the knowledge of good and evil. This gave conscience a basis for right moral judgment. Now, let me talk about conscience for a minute because it's very important. Conscience is a gift from God. Now, sometimes our conscience bothers us and then we're bugged. Well, why does my conscience bother me? It is a gift from God. It's the conscience. Romans chapter 1 talks about the conscience and, and, and the, the conscience of mankind gives us sort of a governor on our behavior. Uh, we do something, we know it's wrong. Instantly the conscience says, I shouldn't be doing this. Again, that is a gift from God. And this gives man a full measure of responsibility to do good and depart from evil. Now, the result of the dispensation of conscience was that uh, all flesh was corrupted and had its way on the earth. All flesh. Um, Noah is said to live in a time when every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. Um, Paul says in his letter to the Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, there's nothing good in us, no one who seeks God, no one at all. And so conscience, while it was at work and, and clearly marking our guilt, uh, we could learn to deny our conscience. Now, here's another reason that this dispensation of conscience is so important. We can sin to such a degree that our hearts get really, really hard. And according to the Apostle Paul, our consciences can be seared. That means they're burned up and unfeeling. And and the more we ignore conscience, I always say that the more often you say no to God, the easier it becomes to say no to him. That's conscience. And so that dispensation also uh, was there. Um, the third dispensation is authority. Man was given authority over the earth. Um, God saved eight persons, Noah and his family, uh, in the judgment of the flood, and then he gave man the dispensation of human government. Um, man didn't do a very good job; still, is not doing a very good job uh, in human government. If any of you watched the the uh, the so-called debate last night uh, between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom, you can see that we didn't very do very well. That's the third dispensation. The fourth is promise. Man given a promise by God. Um, you, you remember God told uh, Adam, I mean Noah, that he would never flood the earth again in judgment. Uh, and he made a promise, and that was when he entered into a covenant. Now, the covenants followed, not just with Noah, but with others. And those promises were made. Uh, a few of those promises were unconditional. Um, some of the other promises were conditional based on the obedience of the Israelites, or in our world, obedience to us. Um, every one of these conditions was violated, and man again failed. So that's four. The fifth dispensation is law. Um, that's why God sent grace. Paul writes a lot about uh, grace in Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and thankfully chapter 8. Um, uh, God gave us the law so that we could identify what's right and what's wrong. You know, in conscience, uh, especially as our consciences get seared or our hearts get hard, uh, we can be subjective rather than objective when it comes to our conscience. But when the law was written, remember, it was written in stone. 
You violate the law. You are guilty. And that's the dispensation of law. And, of course, we failed miserably. And that's why the sixth dispensation is so critical. That's the dispensation of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deservous. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Grace, God's wonderful, wonderful grace, that's dispensation number six. And I think sometimes we get tripped up because we think we have to earn grace, but grace by its very definition is something that we cannot earn, and it is a gift of God. So that's really important for us to understand. So grace, that's the last age that we're in until Jesus calls his church home. And then we're going to enter in with the advent of the Great Tribulation. We're going to come uh, usher in the uh, reign of Jesus Christ. Uh, Judgment uh, or the reign of Jesus Christ in the millennium. uh, Those are the seven dispensations. And the reason it's very important, Caleb, is... and, And this is something you do to the people that you're talking to. You can go back and say, for example, go to the Ten Commandments. And then they'll read the Ten Commandments, and then you'll say, okay, who's God talking to? And they'll say, well, God's talking to everyone. No, who's he talking to? The text tells us, say to the Israelites. And it's the only way that you can make sense out of the Bible. It's the only way that you can keep the promises made in context. It's the only way that that we can understand the time frame, the people to whom God is speaking, and the the longevity of the promises. You know, we get a lot of calls on this program, people who, who want to ask, well, well uh, Pastor Ron, can we take uh, Old Testament promises and, uh, and, and say they're for us too? Uh, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you. Um, yeah, he's, he, Jesus said the same thing. He promises an abundant life. But it's a conditional promise. We can't take that promise that was given to Jeremiah and given to the people of Israel when he had just declared judgment on them. And God is simply saying, look, I'm going to keep my word to Abraham. So it's very important we understand that this is the only way that makes any sense at all regarding uh, the promises of God. So, Caleb, I hope that makes sense to you. It is a, uh, a wonderful, um, when, you, when you first understand that's what the Bible says, uh, it makes all the difference in the world. Understand, and this is just basic hermeneutics, understand what God said and to whom he was speaking. Very, very important. Good question. Here is a question. This one is from... I got to find it here really quickly. It's from Robert S. again. You know what? I'm going to have to get it at the break. I got to find it because I accidentally deleted it and I can't see it. So I got to go dig it out of the delete file. Okay, with that, let's go then to um, some of the questions that have been sent in. We'd love your phone calls. Remember, 340-9585. Mitchell asks, is it possible to know for sure if a loved one is in heaven? Well, it is, Mitchell, if they're born again. And see, that's the thing we've got to be honest about. Uh, was there fruit in their lives? Were they professing believers of Jesus Christ? Did their life change? Now, obviously, God is the only one who really and truly knows everything about our heart. But um, um, I can tell you, Mitchell, when I go to be with the Lord, everybody's going to know I'm with Jesus. Everybody's going to know I'm there. Um, the same thing I hope is true for you. Uh, the problem is we can't know that for sure about people if they weren't public with their faith, if there wasn't fruit coming from their lives. I think as a pastor, one of the frustrating things that I get is uh, solid believers, when somebody close to them dies, they'll say, well, I'm sure they're in a better place now because they were a good person. Well, that's not the basis of getting to heaven. And I think that cheapens our witness I think what we've got to do is be willing to say, look, I'm going to trust the judgment of God. I've got a mother, Mitchell, who, bless her heart, man, she stood for me when nobody else would. Now, she took Paula's side more often than mine. But, but you know, you love your mom, and I don't know if she's there. I don't know. 
because there was no public evidence of her faith. And I've got to be able to trust in and rest in the justice and the holiness of God. And I think it, again, cheapens our witness when we just decide, well, anybody that's close to me is in heaven because, well, God is good and God wants me to be that. I think we've got to be honest enough to say, Lord, I don't know where he is or I don't know where she is. I do funerals a lot, Mitchell. And one of the things that I do at a funeral of an unbeliever or a funeral of somebody that we don't know for sure, whether or not they were a believer, we don't pretend like they are. We don't give the kind of the soapy, oh yeah, he's in heaven looking down. We don't know any of those things. And so what I do in a case of a funeral like that is I let the person who died speak to the people that are there at the service. And I do that out of Luke chapter 16. Here's what they would tell you. And if he or she is in heaven, the only way that you're ever going to see him or her again is to be born again. And you see at a funeral, people are hurting. Their hearts are open. Now, I'm not there to tell anybody your loved one is in hell. But here's what I can say. We don't know, but he knows right now. She knows right now. And what they would say to you is Jesus is real. And if they didn't know Jesus Christ, they would tell you that eternal torment is real. And they would beg you to say yes to Jesus Christ and get born again. So that's the only way, Mitchell, that we can know if somebody's obviously a believer, there was a lot of fruit. But again, one thing we cannot do is convince ourselves that because we baptized our kids or because they answered an altar call, but they never lived a minute for Jesus Christ. In fact, they were living in rebellion against him. We can't just pretend that they're in heaven because once they got baptized, and it makes me feel better. That, again, cheapens our relationship with the Lord. It cheapens the finished work of Christ on the cross. Very, very important. Mitchell, good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Iris. Uh, she says, can we know for sure exactly when, and then in parentheses, what year Jesus was crucified and resurrected? I've read a lot of different dates. Um, yeah, Iris, the, the dating of Jesus' life and ministry is all over the map. Now, uh, I've settled this issue in my mind with a lot of study, and I'm relying on the widely accepted scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson, uh, his book, the, the classic book, The Coming Prince. He lays it out. And the date of Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the last that, that started the last week of his life, uh, according to um, um, him, was 32 AD, April 6th, that corresponds to our calendar. That certainly wouldn't be the Jewish calendar. But April 6th, 32 AD. And the time works, um, the, the, the point of him coming in and being publicly declared as the Messiah for the very first time, it had to be on that day. It was 173,880 days after the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We know that date from... Um, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, and so it was on this day. You know, continually through the Gospels, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Or it's not yet my time. Uh, he he was on a very specific time schedule because in order to fulfill prophecy, he couldn't be one day early, he couldn't be one day late. That would have negated the prophetic value of his arrival. It was on that day. And Sir Robert Anderson um, made a very convincing argument uh, in my mind, April 6th, 32 A.D. Uh, what that means is Jesus was born probably in 4 or 3 B.C. And then the rest of his ministry um, leading to that moment when he entered into Jerusalem. So that's the best we can do. That is, at least in my view, the most convincing um, um, evidence of all Iris. So 32 AD was when he was crucified and risen from the dead, and the world has been um, rejoicing because of it uh, since that time. 
So good question. Thank you very, very much. There's a lot of really good information that you can find about stuff like that. Just got to do a little bit of digging. Uh, But Sir Robert Anderson is one of the old classics. We're inside two minutes now for this half of the program. Um, Reggie says, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on the extra biblical gospels like Thomas or Mary Magdalene? Um, Reggie, I think they can be interesting and they can have some informational value. But one of the problems we call in the gospel, we automatically think that they're on an equal level with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, there's a lot of gospel. The word gospel only meant good news. And, and one, we can't prove it was Thomas or Mary who was the author. Um, uh, certainly not inspired. There are some things that are inconsistent with the other Gospels, the ones that we know were written by the Lord. Uh, And so we know they can't be written by God. That's very important because if we start to give them credibility um, uh, to be on an equal par or equal level with with, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, then we're, we're, we're kind of throwing our Bibles and the authenticity, the authority of our Bibles, uh, out the window. So um, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, there's a Gospel of Barnabas. Um, that one is as interesting as, as any of the others. Uh, but, but remember, they weren't written by God. God only wrote four. And the fact that other people wrote them, there's, again, there's some evidence, there's some corroboration, but we don't hold those on an equal level with Scripture. Hey, we're about out of time for the first half of the program, 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life, and I'll be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our last show of the week. It's, I forgot, it's December 1st already. My goodness. Merry Christmas. (laughs) From, from... Thanksgiving on, it's just like a whirlwind. Everything is going so crazy. Let's go to our first call of the day, Cindy on line one. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? I um. Well, first I wanted to say that you did a really great job on Leviticus once again. That you made it, you made it something we could understand, and you made it something that we could apply in our lives. Which just reading through it. It wouldn't seem, you know, that, that that'd be stuff that we'd, you know, be doing or applying to our life. But when you and Mama Paula were talking about what you were grateful for, I thought about Wednesday night study, and I thought about how when we repent, we're washed clean right away. But back in the Old Testament, you know, they, they did their washing thing they had to do when, when they did something they weren't supposed to do. But it sounds to me like they weren't washed clean until the evening, which for the Jews is the next day. So they had to wait until the next day to be, you know, considered washed clean and, and forgiven. And I'm just so glad that we don't have to wait till sundown to... Mm-hmm. Um, be forgiven. So that's all I really had. I really didn't have a question. But um, I'm going to get off the phone. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. God bless you. You know, anytime anybody tells me the Leviticus studies are interesting, I just praise the Lord because I don't know. I mean, it's it's valuable. It's the Word of God. But um, interesting. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate it very, very much. One of the other things, I think this is the most important thing, Cindy, regarding um, the the difference in um, having your sins forgiven um, in the Old Testament versus our sins being forgiven in the New Testament. You know, these are rituals that had to be repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. And, and even the, the, the Day of Atonement, um, the, the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, the sins were only covered over from year to year. It was as though the high priest would make the sacrifice um, and, and, and Israel's sins, God would cover them over, but they were never gone. And when we repent of our sins, when we ask Jesus into our heart, our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, and they're forgiven instantly. And our salvation is secure. No Jew could ever say that. 
And then I'll go one step further. When we sin as believers, though positionally our sins are forgiven and we're perfect without spot or blemish, uh, our fellowship is broken by sin. God is holy, and uh, the Apostle John says that Jesus is the light, and we who claim to have fellowship with him must walk in the light. And when we make that trip into darkness, um, you know, we've got to say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. And that's why First John 1, 9 is so valuable to us. If we confess, that is to agree with God about our sin. He, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins And here's the key, purify us from all unrighteousness. That means instantly we can be back in the presence of the Lord, enjoying the fullness of our relationship with him, the fullness that he died for. You know, on Sunday here at our church, we're going to be taking communion. And his body broken for us, the punishment he took in our place. I had a question earlier this week about um, um, penal substitutionary atonement, um, there's so many different views of, of of what atonement really is. There's only one thing: Jesus took the punishment, the 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 punishment that brought us peace. Isaiah 53 says was placed upon him, and that's the only way he took our place. And because he did, our fellowship now can be restored instantly by repenting. Now we sometimes feel real guilty, and we don't really want to do much. Um, because we think, well, I'm not worthy. But all you have to do is really be sorry and say, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Please forgive me and help me, strengthen me, O Lord. And he comes rushing right back into our hearts, and everything then is as though we had never sinned. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when we fall into sin, there are consequences. We all know that. But our relationship with God is unencumbered, and instantly we can be in his presence. Here's the question from Robert S. that I couldn't find because I accidentally deleted it. Uh, Robert says, What does it mean that Jesus was the firstborn in Colossians? Is this how we became the Son of God through this process? Uh, Thanks for your help. Robert, the firstborn, it doesn't mean that he was created. Mormons uh, and Jehovah's Witnesses sometimes will use this. No, Jesus wasn't the creator God. He was a created being. That's not what uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 means. Listen to what it says. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body. That's present tense. The church. He is the beginning. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So when Colossians 1.18 says he's the firstborn from among the dead, that doesn't mean that he was a born a person, you know, created, like you and I are born. Um, that, that, that Greek word is a different word. It's prototokos, and that, that means first in priority. It doesn't mean that he was the firstborn. Let me give you an example. David is called the firstborn of Jesse's sons. Now, we know David was the lastborn of Jesse's sons, but he was the first one in the sense that David had the priority. And the purpose of the scripture is to give David priority. Um, um, in the Septuagint, that same Greek word would be used, prototokos. So David is the firstborn, though he was the seventh. Um, when Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac, he said, sacrifice your son, your only son. Same idea. We know that there was another son, an older son, one who came before physically, and that's uh, Ishmael. And the same thing is being said here. And in the context, because Jesus has priority or preeminence over everything and everyone, he is the most important or he is the one uh, to whom we look. He's the firstborn, uh, the head of the church. Um, Why? So that in our lives, he can have the supremacy. So that is um, the answer, Robert. Thank you very, very much. Don't listen to the cults. Here's an anonymous question. This one is, um, hello, Pastor Ron. Before Jesus died on the cross, were people saved by their works because of the law? If not, how did people go to heaven before Jesus? Thank you for the help. Anonymous, um, people have always been saved the same way. By believing God, by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So let me just use Abraham as an example. 
Genesis says Abraham believed God. Now, keep in mind, it doesn't say believed in God. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was saved by faith and the faith was the result of him believing, actively trusting the word of God. So, um, you know, the reason that Old Testament saints didn't go immediately into heaven is because they couldn't. Jesus hadn't died for the sins of the world. That's why in Luke chapter 16, we have a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise, where the righteous dead went awaiting that moment when Jesus went into the center of the earth and set the captives free. And he did do that following his crucifixion, uh, in between the time that and his resurrection, he descended into the lower parts of the earth and and said, uh, let the captives go free. So they were saved because they believed. Now, I think a good way, Anonymous, to view this is we look at history, and right in the middle of history is a cross. The people that were born before Jesus physically. They were here before Jesus uh, entered the world. Um, They looked forward to the promises of God. They looked forward to the cross by believing in those promises. Now, admittedly, their uh, concept of eternity, their concept of heaven, uh, their concept of being saved was entirely different. But they believed God. Now, their relationship to the law was also important because they believed God, then they lived a life that was upright before the Lord, but that's not what saved them. That was a result. And, and of course, like with the case of David, I'm talking about him a lot today, um, they messed up a whole bunch of times. But they were saved by faith because they believed God. I think it's very important, so I'm going to repeat it. Abraham believed God, not in God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So David's salvation, every Old Testament saint, their salvation was a gift from God because they believed. They believed what God said. They took his word to heart. Now, as we go back to that cross in the middle of history, they look forward to the cross by faith. You and I, Anonymous, we look backwards at the cross. Now, we have no excuse because the cross, historically, uh, there's overwhelming evidence for the fact of Jesus' life, the miraculous powers he demonstrated, his mastery over creation, his mastery over the spirit world, his mastery over over the, the, the things that he did, you know, the multiplication uh, of the, the fish and the, and the bread and other miracles that he did. Uh, there's no uh, the evidence of his life and the things he did is overwhelming, but equally overwhelming is the evidence for his death and his resurrection. There is no doubt and there's no honest scholarship that, that can deny that the evidence is overwhelming. Now, they can reject it. They can say, well, I know he was real and I know he got killed and I know he didn't stay dead, but that doesn't move me. That doesn't. I, I don't want to stop sinning. But The evidence is overwhelming, and all we have to do is look at the evidence. And we look back at the cross, so it ought to be easy for us because we're looking at demonstrable history. And because we can do that, um, we are way more accountable. Those who who live on this side of the cross, Anonymous, we're way, way, way more accountable than the people who lived before Jesus was born. Great question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from, let's see, um, another anonymous one. I'm Pastor, I'm a Christian, but have a real fear of death. I know I shouldn't, but I do. Can you help me? Yeah, let me, first thing, anonymous, remove the guilt. Okay? We all have a fear of death. Now, it's not like a I'm shaking in my boots fear. It, it's the kind of fear we're built with an instinct to survive. I want to see Jesus anonymous more than I want to take my next breath. But as long as I'm here, I want to live. And I want to live in the fullness of God. That's not a contradiction. That just means I'm placing my life in the hands of the Lord. 
So um, um, no guilt in fearing death. We're instinctively built that way by God. Uh, I want to live. That's what Paul said. Uh, to, to live is to produce more fruit for the kingdom of God. Uh, departing and being with Christ is better by far. But uh, what we need to do is understand that, that that's instinctively built in. Now, let me kind of go on the other side of this thing. Um, you say you're a Christian. Make sure that your real fear of death isn't because of your living style or your behavior. You know, if you're living uh, in contradistinction or in opposition to what the Word tells us to do, then you ought to be afraid. You ought to be afraid. You know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, my goodness, uh, he scolded him. That was a, a full-on rebuke. Um, and, and he was trying to use the fear of God to wake them up. So if, it's, if you know you're born again uh, and you're afraid of death, um, understand that's normal. And then death will be a reward. Death is victory. Today, if you hear your hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is a day of salvation. And we can defeat the last enemy. And that last enemy, of course, is death. Um, and then don't think about dying for Christ. You know, one of the things that I tell people here at the church all the time, Anonymous, is, is you know, um, you know, we think, well, I don't know if I'd die for Jesus. Don't, don't worry about that. Will you live for him? That's the question. And as you live for him, as you get to know him better, as you're in the word, and, and, and maybe this fear of death because you don't know the promises of God, get in the word and embrace the promises, and those promises will motivate you to, to greater, even more zealous service, and then that fear of God will kind of go away, or that fear of death, rather, will kind of go away. So do we want to die? No. Do I want to see Jesus? Yes. That's not a contradiction. Both of those things can be true. And that's why we leave the idea of dying in the hands of the one who is the master over the timing of our lives and our di- and our deaths. Thank you very much, Anonymous. Let's go to Alex on line one. Alex, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Howdy, Pastor. I hope you're doing well today. I am. Thank you. So I was recently reading Mark um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Um, which is the parable of the sower. And what kind of interested me and what I have the question about is after uh, Jesus explained, or after he gives the parable of the sower, um, his disciples ask him, uh, you know, what it meant. And uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 9, 9 and 10, I believe, uh, which is basically saying um, he he tells these parables so um, people may... Um, see but not perceive and hear but not understand lest um, they uh, hear and be saved mm-hmm. and it, to me it seems like that um, it, it, Jesus like d- it doesn't want people to be saved but I know that's not the case because yeah. God desires all men to be saved so um, that's my question I was wondering if you could explain that a little more yeah, I can, Alex. Thank you very, very much. It, that's that's a common issue with a lot of people. Um, he's quoting Isaiah, and Isaiah is simply um, prophesying that 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 people have ears, but they won't use them to hear God. They have uh, eyes, but they won't use them to see God. And what Jesus is doing by quoting Isaiah there is saying that I'm going to use these parables as illustrations of the truth. Now, if we read that incorrectly, then then we come up with the conclusion that um, um, Jesus was saying, well, the, the truth is hidden from some people. Well, the fact that the truth is hidden from some people is the reason that he used parables. And and one thing that we remember is that every time Jesus told a parable, everybody knew exactly what he was saying, and they knew that he was speaking about them. In fact, his disciples at one point said, Jesus, you know they're angry because they know that you're talking about them. We also know that their anger was fueled um, um, to a greater degree because they understood the message. So here's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was saying... Even though you're not understanding what I'm saying, here's what I'm saying, and by way of illustration, I'm giving you these illustrations of truth, and now you are accountable. Now you're accountable. Jesus was never 
trying to conceal the truth. He was revealing the truth. And, and the, the, the proof of that is that, that uh, they, they knew instantly that he was talking about them. Now, while they may not have understood the parable that he was speaking, depending on which parable it is, they knew that he was talking about them. And Jesus is simply saying, look, the secret of the kingdom of God was given to you, but it's not given to them, and it's simply a matter of of their hard hearts and their refusal, uh, Alex, to... Um, to 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 believe what they see with their eyes. So it wasn't that Jesus was concealing the truth or hiding the truth. It wasn't like he picked his disciples and said, well, you know, you guys are good guys, so I'm going to give you the meaning. Um, Jesus would have given the meaning to anybody who was really seeking, but the people that were rejecting the parable, in part, were rejecting it because they understood exactly what it was saying. Now, this is important because... Um, the the uh, parable of the sower is sort of the foundational parable of all the parables. And that's why Jesus gave the meaning of this parable. It's a foundation parable. Um, in these parables, birds are evil. So that means in all of the other parables, birds represent evil. Um, Jesus told them what it meant. Uh, and, and that particular parable is is about sowing seed or, or or scattering the word of God, and and the kinds of of hearts that the word is going to fall on. And we see that Alex every single day in church. You know, uh, same message, same environment. Uh, one person will be convicted and come forward to give their life to Jesus Christ. Another person um, just sort of tunes it out, and it doesn't affect. Same opportunity, the same place at the same time, um, but but Jesus wanted them to be sure. If you don't understand this parable, how can you understand any? So this foundational parable matters a great deal, and that's why Jesus went to the length of explaining it. Now, I think it's interesting also that his disciples didn't understand it either. Now, nobody really got the meaning of it, and that's why Jesus sat down and says, okay, let me tell you what the meaning of the parable of the sower is all about. And then Jesus says, you remember this because there's going to be a lot of other parables. They're illustrations of truth, never to conceal the truth. And you're absolutely right, Alex. Jesus was there preaching to everybody. That's why at the end of his ministry, he could look out over Jerusalem and weep. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew that they'd come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But now you didn't know the time of God's visitation. So hope that helps. Thank you, Alex. Very, very good question. Anonymous says, how much freedom do we have in the marriage bed? Um, if you've got a child listening, you might want to turn the volume down right now. Um, anonymous, a husband and wife married in Christ have complete and total freedom in the marriage bed, except for one thing. There is one sexual sin that is repeatedly condemned in the Bible. And of course, that's the sin of sodomy. That's not just man on man. That's husband and wife. That's unnatural. And God condemns that repeatedly. But everything else that is acceptable between a husband and a wife is okay. And God wants the marriage bed to be playful. He wants it to be passionate. And I love the fact that God has given us the capacity to enjoy our sexuality. And he's done that because he wants it to be a blessing in our lives. You know, I used to own racehorses. And if you see racehorses breed, there's no enjoyment. It's just all instinct. Um, But not so with a husband and a wife. God has given us a privilege that nobody else has. Read the Song of Songs and you'll see the sex act, the marriage bed. You'll see the marriage bed. Uh, in all of its glory, poetically, uh, certainly there's nothing dirty about it, but you'll see it, uh, and and uh, the variations of their sexual enjoyment uh, are very wide. So you have all kinds of freedom. There's just one thing that God says is not natural, don't do it, and that's sodomy. Thank you very much, Anonymous. i got time for one more question. 
And Michael says, why does God make some people with disabilities? This seems unfair and unloving. Michael, God doesn't make anybody with disabilities. Uh, that's what happens as a result of the fallen world that we live in. That's what happened when sin be, entered into the world and ruined God's perfect creation. You know, people always say, well, God made me this way. I can't help it. Don't blame God for your sin. Now, people with disabilities aren't disabled because they're sinners. They're sinners, but it has nothing to do one with the other. We live in a fallen world. Our, the creation has been corrupted. Uh, there is a day coming, and for those of you with disabilities, it's one of the things that makes our moment with Jesus all the greater. Uh, our disabilities will be gone one day in our new glorified physical resurrected bodies. Everything is going to be perfect. And I, I just think so much, those people with disabilities, they're going to be the most grateful people in heaven you know, I think of people like Fanny Crosby, uh, who was blind, and God used her to change the world. I think of people like Johnny Erickson Tata that I talk about from time to time on this program. And and she will once... Uh, uh, Fanny Crosby said, the, the first thing I'll ever see is the face of Jesus. Can you imagine that? So God doesn't make some people with disabilities. We're born through the process of creation. Only Adam and Eve were created directly by God. And then mankind and sin ruined it. And these kind of disabilities are the result. It'll all be right one day, Michael. Hey, thanks for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful Communion Sunday at church. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. And I will be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.